It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 233, The Battles of Salamis and Plate. While Zerubbabel and others are rebuilding the state of Israel, a great conflict is going on for the freedom of Greece. The Persian horde continues south into Greece, into southern Greece, headed towards Athens. And when the Spartans fell at Thermopylae, the Athenians made sure to withdraw their fleet in good order. Incurring a draw with the Persian fleet, the Athenians at sea gained a little confidence, though they remained outnumbered close to three to one at sea, while it's at least ten to one in land. The naval battle at Artemisium played a vital role in what happens next. At Artemisium, the Greeks performed well while a storm smashed part of the Persian fleet. Where the two fleets did collide, a huge engagement occurred, and both sides were battered. The one learning was that the Greeks performed well in tight corners while they were defeated in open oceans. This 3-1 to odds at sea will definitely be better than the land odds for Greece. And then the oracle plays a vital part in the next chapter of our story. Notice while we cover the story of how the Greeks are walking into their prophetic words instead of letting them happen on their own. Not that positioning yourself for prophetic blessings is bad, But Leonidas literally presented himself the fulfillment of the death word for the king in order to save his people. Now the Greeks retreat with their fleet to Salamis. Holy Salamis was the word from Delphi. Now Salamis is an island south of of Athens, and that's where the fleet withdraws to. The fleet goes there to shelter and regroup, but a big debate arises whether they should defend Athens or withdraw. And the question was, do you fight on land? and sea? Do you withdraw to Salamis? Fight at sea, withdrawal on land, all these debates are going on. The decision was mostly pushed by Themistocles to withdraw according to the oracle's advice to Salamis with the people and accumulate every naval vessel in Greece for a confrontation at Salamis. This debate's going on for weeks with varying steps taken along the way, and the first thing they finally decide to do is they decide to leave Athens as the Persians continue their advance. While 271 Greek vessels assemble at Salamis, many of them state-of-the-art triremes of their day, covered in marines with menacing battering rams just below the bow of the vessels. The withdrawal occurs, but now there's another question, another debate. I mean, these Greeks, they love to debate. The question is, will these Greek navies fight together when and where? Herodotus, the screenwriter, has a fascinating account as the Persians march south towards Athens, devastating everything in their path. The Persians come upon the neutral Greeks in central Greece, still celebrating the Olympic Games. I mean, it's such drama. And I wonder if this really happened, but regardless, it's a great story. So here is what Herodotus says. There came now a few deserters from Arcadia to join the Persians, poor men who had nothing to live on and were one of employment. The Persians brought them into the king's presence, and there inquired of them by a man who acted as their spokesman. What are the Greeks doing? I mean, they're, they're having athletic games. 
The Arcadians answered, They're holding the Olympic Games, seeing the athletic sports and the chariot races. And what, said the man, is the prize for which they contend? An olive wreath, returned the others, which is given to the man who wins. On hearing this, Trethamichiles, the son of Andamatias, uttered a speech which was in truth most noble, but which caused him to be taxed with cowardice by King Xerxes. Hearing the men say that the prize was not money, but a wreath of olive, he could not forbear from exclaiming before them all, Good heavens, Mardonius, what manner of men are these that they have brought before us to fight? Men who contend with one another not for money, but for honor. And I think this really tells the story. The Greeks are a motivated people. They aren't going to cower down and be defeated easily. Men who fight for greater things than money or power are a formidable force to be reckoned with all through history. The Greeks are showing this, that the numerical superiority and resource-abundant Persians, they don't have what it takes to fight them. The men who fight for freedom and honor are a formidable force. Motivation is a key factor in states, peoples, and organizations. The Greeks are fighting for an ideal and for a set of traditions and values. This trumps man-made issues, motivations like greed and power. The Persian force approached Athens and found it abandoned. Some poor and elderly hid in the Acropolis and resisted for a short while until they were overcome. Xerxes looted Athens and burned it. If we remember the tearing down of strongholds theory of history, the Athenian Acropolis stronghold was torn down. It won't require another tearing down for another 400 years. Xerxes continues south and meets up with his navy, while part of his army begins a march towards Sparta to destroy it. And before the army could arrive, every effort was made to erect a wall separating Greece from the peninsula where Sparta reigns. Now the debate continued amongst the Greek states of what to do. And, I mean, you got all these city-states, and I mean they've hardly ever joined forces ever, and here they are, and of course they're going to argue, and as you imagine, there's just so much disagreement among them. And as a blockade narrowed itself around Salamis, the Greek fleet was outnumbered three to one. The vote was going against Themistocles to fight at Salamis. And Themistocles was getting, um, he was just getting completely outvoted. And the Spartan navy and other vessels were about to flee Salamis, fearing capture in the bay. Themistocles, pulling a daring Greek trick, which they're so known for through history, sends one of his educated slaves to Xerxes to tell him the disorganization in the Greek camp and to rush and destroy them. The ruse worked, and Xerxes encircled Salamis, trapping the Greeks in. He lands a, a landing force on part of the island as well, and none were allowed to escape. And now that there was no option for escape, the Greeks were forced to fight as a unified force. And as the Persians entered the bay, Themistocles sprung his next trap. He separated elements of the Greek fleet. And as the Persians came into the tight enclosed bay, see this is what they were good at, his more maneuverable and better trained Greek fleet attacked from multiple sides. The tight corners of the bay played to the Greek advantage. Here is Herodotus on the battle. And take note, Xerxes found a perch on an elevated peninsula to watch the entirety of the battle unfold. And also there's a queen of an Ionian vessel named Artemisia, which distinguished herself fully. And actions of Xerxes against cowards in his own navy are interesting. And here is Herodotus, the screenwriter. 
We quote him here. Far the greater number of the Persian ships engaged in the battle were disabled, either by the Athenians or by the Aeginians. That's a, another Greek city-state in their navy. For as the Greeks fought in order and kept their line, while the barbarians were in confusion and had no plan in anything that they did, the issue of the battle could scarcely be other than it was. Yet the Persians fought far more bravely here than at Arubia, and indeed surpasses themselves. Each did their utmost throughout fear of Xerxes, for which each thought that the king's eye was actually upon them. What part this several nations, whether Greek or barbarian, took part in the combat, I'm not able to say for certain. Artemisia, however, I know distinguished herself in a way as raised her even higher than she stood before in the esteem of the king. For after confusion it spread throughout the whole of the king's fleet, and her ship was closely pursued by an Athenian trireme, she having no way to flee, since in front of her were a number of friendly vessels, she was nearest of all the Persians to the enemy, resolved on a measure which in fact proved her safety. Pressed by the Athenian pursuer, she bore straight against one of the ships of her own party, a Chalidinian, which was Damatheus, the Chalidinian king, himself on board. I cannot say whether he had any, she had any quarrel with the man while the fleet was at the Hellespont, or no, neither can I decide whether she or set purpose to attack this vessel, or whether it was merely chance that the Caledonian ship came in her way. But certain as it was that she bore down upon this vessel and sank it, and that thereby she had the good fortune to procure herself a double advantage. For the commander of the Athenian trireme, which he saw her bear down on one of the enemy's fleet, thought immediately that her vessel was a Greek, or else had deserted from the Persians, and was now fighting on the Greek side. He therefore gave up the chase and turned away to attack others. Thus in the first place she saved herself by the action, and when was able to get clear from the battle, while further it fell out that in the very act of doing the king an injury she raised herself to a greater height than ever in his esteem. For as Xerxes beheld the fight, he remarked, it is said, the destruction of the vessel, whereupon the bystanders observed to him, How well Artemisia fights, and how she just sunk a ship of the enemy. Then Xerxes asked if it were really Artemisia's doing, and they answered, Certainly, for they knew her ensign. And while all made sure that the sunken vessel belonged to the opposite side, everything it is said conspired to prosper the queen. And it is especially fortunate for her that not one of those on board of the Chalidian vessel survived to become her accuser. Xerxes, they say, in reply to the remarks made to him, observed, My men have behaved like women, and my women like men. The result of Salamis was a complete disaster for Xerxes. His navy was dealt a crushing blow. Some escaped, but their superiority at sea was removed in its entirety. There was no fear of Persian warships as they crumbled apart and sank beneath the sea as rushes of ocean waters poured through holes pierced by Greek rams. Xerxes, concerned for his throne and the bridges over the Dardanelles to be burned, he took the advice of Mardonius and marched his army with the exception of 300,000 soldiers home. Xerxes would arrive in Susa months later, a broken and depressed king. Scared for his throne and his security, he became more and more controlled by nobles and rules of the land. Little did he exercise the authority he carried on the campaign in Greece. So weakened in his power, he's later convinced by his nobles to divorce his wife when she breaks a traditional rule. 
opening the books for the story of Esther next week. Meanwhile, Mardonius had enough soldiers to destroy all of Greece, and that is what he promised. Unfortunately, the Herodotus 300,000 troops or soldiers number was probably more like 75,000. And he would be facing the combined armament of the entirety of Greece soon. Mardonius wintered near Thebes and allowed the Athenians to retake their city. And what happens next is what the Greeks do best. They fight amongst themselves. You would think they would rally instantly, but, but all of a sudden here it's, it's Athens who, who doesn't seem to want to fight or, or you know it's Mardonius who's giving money to one side versus the other and he's trying to conspire. He, he actually has the support of Macedon and some other areas and he's trying to get Greece to break itself apart. And that was, seemed to be part of what he wanted to do. And this Spartan-Athens alliance starts to break apart. The Athenians refuse to change sides when Mardonius truly courts him. And it made Mardonius angry, though. And potentially, they actually dragged out this, um, this potential changing of sides long enough to allow a, more armies to rally and to join Sparta on land. Um, Mardonius marches on Athens. It's abandoned again. It's burned again. And here he waited. Um, he goes back to Thebes. This is Mardonius. And he awaits a concentration of all the Spartan forces as they come after him to attack him. And the Spartans come with every citizen, it appears, they had at their disposal. And alongside them march the rest of the southern Greece, um, with the exception of, of most of Athens. After a skirmish with the Persian cavalry, the engagement was underway. The Persians advanced and began to shower them with arrows. Spartan casualties started to mount. But no attack was given because no favorable omens were received from their goat sacrifices. See, those Spartans, they're, they're so warrior-like, but they're also so religious. And at the same time, at the very last minute, they received a favorable omen from their sacrifices, and the advance was issued. And at this stage, there was probably close to 40,000 Spartans and other Greeks. Now, the Athenians that were in Salamis, they actually rally at sea, and they have a counterattack of their own. That I'll talk about in a second. And outnumbered almost two to one, the Spartans advance with their amazing armor and their weapons, and they decimate the Persians. And when the Persians began to hold their spears to push them back, the Spartans would just pull out their short sword and wreck havoc on the Persian lines. The Persians withdrew around Mardonius with a thousand bodyguards, and they nearly fell to the man until Mardonius was killed. The Persian soldiers were killed, wounded, or they fled all the way back to Persia or their homeland. Now at the same time at the Battle of Platea, there's actually another engagement. Um, so the Athenians rally the, the, the navies while the Spartans attack on land. Um, Though there's that breaking apart that almost happened, and it's just so typical of uh, this time frame that they fight each other, and if they're not fighting each other, they're fighting against someone, and they're doing really well at it. At the same time of the battle, the Greek fleets pursued what was left of the Persian fleets and destroyed it off the coast of modern Turkey, thus symbolizing the end of this era of the Persian Wars, this second phase um, and this whole time frame of the invasion of Greece is over. Um, historians actually title the next phase the, the Greek counterattack. And the Greeks would go on this counterattack, and Athens would lead the way and enter a golden age. 
Its greed would invite an ongoing clash with Sparta, and that wall on the Peloponnesus, which was served to separate the Persians uh, from the Spartans, will actually serve to the Athenians' advantage, and it'll keep the Spartans from attacking them. While they had this strong navy, the Spartans would have a great army, but they couldn't get past the wall. But in case you're, you're going to think I'm going to take, you know, three episodes on the upcoming Peloponnesian War, I, I won't do that. Thucydides isn't as exciting as Herodotus, the father of history. Next week, we get back to the biblical narrative. Xerxes returns from the war broken. In addition, he's forced to divorce his wife by a cabinet because of bad behavior, and he's depressed and forced to choose another wife. And also internal power struggles occur when Mardonius is killed. A new vizier, Naaman, fills the vacuum of Mardonius' death, and he rises to power. We conclude this episode with the witty comment that Herodotus ends his histories with. Not because he's the greatest historian ever, because he wasn't. Um, in fact, Janelle walked by the other day, and I was reading Herodotus, and she said, I heard he wasn't very reliable, and he favored the Greeks' perspective. My answer was, you're right. He's off the wall in some of his statements, but he's the only source of most of the history of this time frame. I mean, a great storyteller, not the first. After all, there was Moses, Homer, and others. But he's attributed with that moniker of the father of history. And let's just say he was the first screenwriter in history. And in tribute to Herodotus, whether you like him or not, we end with his final quotes from his histories um, of the Persian Wars. I guess his book is just called The Histories. And it ends in very witty Herodotus fashion. So the context of Herodotus's final statement of his histories um, is he's actually quoting Cyrus of all kings, not Xerxes. And uh, uh, this is when Cyrus originally was um, had territories all the way into Turkey, um, and he had some dealings with a kind of a, a man who was a, a king over a smallish area um, that was very rugged, rugged terrain. It didn't have a lot of resources, um, and Cyrus was about to take it over. And upon the notice from Cyrus that he should withdraw the land and give it over to him, this king, his name was Artocles, he made this statement, Cyrus, leave this small and barren country of ours and take possession of a better one. There are plenty to choose from, some near, some further off. And if we take one of them, we shall be admired more than ever. It is the natural thing for a sovereign people to do. And when will there be a better opportunity than now, when we are masters of many nations of all Asia? Seize a different country than this one, for it, was, it is rough and it is barren. Cyrus did not think much of this suggestion. He replied that they might act upon it if he pleased, but added the warning that, if they did so, they must prepare themselves to rule no longer, but to be ruled by others. Soft countries, he said, breed soft men. It is not the property of one soil to produce fine fruits and good soldiers, too. The Persians had to admit that this was true, and that Cyrus was wiser than they. So they left him, and chose rather to live in a rugged land, and to rule, tend to cultivate rich plains, and to be slaves to others.